For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That's a pretty far distance of difference. And if we're left to ourselves, we will always get it wrong. We'll get it wrong all the time because we default to, to fallen thinking. In fact, Romans 1.18 tells us that even the truth that God has provided us, the, the information, the knowledge that the Lord's given us through creation or, or whatever it might be, we suppress in our, in our sinfulness. Romans 1.18 tells us that the unrighteousness of men, they suppress the truth. That's part of God's wrath. And then a verse that you probably know or maybe memorized in Sunday school, there's a way that seems right to man, but, but its end is the way of death. There's a way that seems right, ways of the world, ways of man, but the destination that it leads to, you don't want to go there. That's why we must look to the Bible. Very different, big difference between worldly wisdom, the things that that God highlights and the things that, that, that we do. It's, the Bible's the only place though, where you'll find God's thoughts, His ways. It, it provides everything we need for life and godliness. It's absolutely sufficient to guide us, provide us everything that we, we, we need in life. One of the most obvious ways that the world's thinking is different from, from God's is, is what it finds commendable, what it praises. The world passes out awards all the time the things that, that it applauds, the things like the, the world's hundred richest women or the ESPYs for athletics. At least most of the ESPY awards are for athletics. They pepper in all kinds of cultural things too. The Nobel Peace Prize, which is not really noble or peaceful in any way anymore. And then there's that virtuous and coveted award, People Magazine's Sexiest Man Alive. How would you like to stand before the bar of God one day, and all that you have to your credit, what you offer the Lord, is I won People Magazine's Sexiest Man Alive Award. The Bible has a very different set of scales, doesn't it? Very different set of scales for greatness. What makes a person great in God's eyes? What, what is truly praiseworthy in life? Well, it's not a secret. Jesus actually tells us in Matthew 20, verses 26 through 28. He says, it's not this way among you, that's amongst his disciples in the kingdom, the church, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall, shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. The measure of that greatness is how closely we, we imitate the Lord, just like the Apostle Paul has been exhorting the, the Philippians. Jesus says, just as the Son of Man did, did not come to be served, but to serve. And he gave his life a ransom for many. And so after giving us the, the command to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel in Philippians chapter 1, we do that by having the same attitude in ourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, this attitude of, of humble obedience. Paul is giving us three living lessons that, that are illustrations that we can learn from. The Bible provides both precept and, and pattern to teach us. It, it gives us material to learn and then gives us models to, to follow and in verses 6 through 11 of Philippians 2, Jesus humbles himself, and because of that, God exalts him. And then, and then we're commanded to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. And we're to do that without grumbling and complaining. 
And now that truth is displayed by the Apostle Paul and by Timothy and the one we'll see today, Epaphroditus. And so we're encouraged to imitate them in verses 17 through 30. And and we've come to our final example. We've already looked at Paul and we've already looked at Timothy. We're going to see Epaphroditus uh, today. And his his example is the loftiest of all. I mean, you would think it's just the opposite. You would think that the great example in the list would be the apostles or If not, the apostle surely his son in the faith, not an average church member like Epaphroditus. But that's where the highlight is. That's where God shines the the spotlight. It's praiseworthy service to God. That's, That's what's exalted. The apostle Paul modeled joyful sacrifice. He said he poured out his life. He lived to be a secondary offering poured out on others. Uh, Timothy was an example of sincere selflessness. He, He was selflessly obedient to the apostle Paul, completely submissive to him for Christ. And now Epaphroditus is one who is an example of commendable service. He almost died risking his life for Christ in in service to Paul on behalf of the the Philippians. There are five verses here in verses 25 through, through 30, the most extensive of the three models. But if you look closely at this brother's life, you're going to see four features of commendable service. What is commendable service? Well, there are four features that Epaphroditus highlights for us commendable services defined in its description. There's commendable servings distress in verse 26, commendable servings distance in verse 27, and then commendable servings direction. Who's it aimed at? Verses 28 through, through 30. Description, distress, distance, and direction. If you didn't get those, you'll get them one at a time. Here's the first one. The first feature of commendable service is is its description. Look at verse 25. Paul said, But I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to, to my deed. Commendable service. As you serve... You serve as a brother, as a laborer, as a soldier, a messenger, and a, and a minister. And Paul tells the Philippian church that he plans to send two men to them... It, the first one is Timothy and Epaphroditus, and, and the church knows both of them. And, and he says he hopes to send Timothy soon. That's what we learned last week. As soon as there was clarity brought about, about his own, uh, his own uh, affairs. And then Paul's going to follow Timothy. But he urgently sends Epaphroditus back. And he's explaining why in, in these verses. This is the only place in the Bible that we learn about this, this man, Epaphroditus. And Paul saves his highest praise... For not a son in the faith, but a simple church member, whose service is, is anything other than ordinary. And Paul describes him five ways here, five commendable ways. He, he calls him my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier, and then he flips it, your messenger and your minister. First three descriptions are related to service, directly related to, to service for Paul, or on behalf of Paul. The last two are related to the Philippians. In both cases, it emphasizes serving's relationship. That Epaphroditus had this relationship in his service to both Paul and also to the Philippian church. And he starts by describing him as, as my brother. And you can tell from Epaphroditus' name that, that he didn't start that way. Epaphroditus is not a very good Jewish name, is it? it it's not even a good Christian name. 
Epaphroditus means favorite of Aphrodite, the, the goddess of beauty and, and good luck. And one of the things you have to remember when Paul's writing, these are first generation believers, and they're being saved right out of pagan worship, and they're being brought right into the church. And, and part of the baggage that Epaphroditus brought was, was his own name. So he's clearly a pagan convert, possibly a man who came to faith as a result of Paul's ministry. And we don't know when he was converted, but it's obviously, obviously his family worshipped the goddess Aphrodite. What a testimony then for, for Paul to call him my brother. And Paul doesn't simply mean my brother in Christ, which he surely means that. But he means more when he says my, my brother, and he leads with this. He means that Epaphroditus had become a close confidant, a dear friend. And, and that happened through his service to him. There was a close camaraderie that was developed while they were together, and it happened quickly. Epaphroditus has not been with Paul long. We know it was somewhere between three months and two years, and we know that by, by, by two things. Epaphroditus was sick, and um, Paul had only been in prison for about two years. And so because Epaphroditus is sick, Philippi was about 800 miles from Rome, so it takes about six weeks to get back and forth. And so the uh, Epaphroditus was sick, and, and news was sent to the Philippians six weeks, and then news came back to Epaphroditus that they were worried about him another six weeks, and so at least three months, I'm sure much longer than that. And we know this is Paul's first imprisonment because he has his own quarters, he's able to come and go, he, he's witnessing, he's not in a dank hole like in the Mamertine prison in his second imprisonment whenever he's about ready to, to die. The point is, a short period of time, this man who, who's, who has nothing in common with Paul. Paul. Paul is an erudite Jew that's converted. And here's a man named after a pagan deity. In that short period of time, Paul says he's not only my brother in Christ, he's, he's my brother. The conditions help us understand. However long Epaphroditus had been there, it was a short time. And he so endeared himself that Paul leads out in this way. And, and serving will do that for a relationship. Serving others is the best and fastest way to connect with other believers and a church. I mean, if you're new here or someone is new to you, the fastest way to go from stranger to sister is to offer yourself in commendable service. I mean, you've experienced that, right? If you went on a short-term mission trip and you're there a week or ten days and you don't know these people at all, and by the time you're done, you feel like you've known these folks all of your life. Well, how did that happen? Well, you serve together. Look for needs, meet needs, offer yourself as a servant, and you'll connect. And the opposite is, is true. If you stay aloof, if you stay disconnected, and you just sit back and you don't serve, then distance will remain. I mean, people who come to a church and don't serve usually don't stay. And, and when they leave, they say something like, well, I just never got connected. And the vast majority of times, because they never offered anything to connect to. They just sat there. They, they, they didn't put themselves out in any way. And I'm not talking about being an, a, an extrovert. You may be an introvert or, or whatever they, they call you. I mean, you don't, have to be, you don't have to have any certain personality type to serve, but serving actually binds you together with, with others. And Epaphroditus was like a brother to Paul because he served him. But notice what else he says. He, he also, his service also made him a fellow worker. Notice the fellow part. My brother and fellow worker. The word means a co-laborer. Paul and Epaphroditus had not only 
uh, not only had a common spiritual life, they, they, gave, uh, they engaged in common spiritual effort together. This is a term Paul uses almost exclusively for gospel servants. Of the 13 times that it's used in the New Testament, only one is, is not Paul. It's the idea of, uh, of affectionate partnership. It's a common struggle in the, in the gospel work. Do you know how you feel? Maybe I can explain it this way. You know how you feel whenever you have a hard task to do at, at work? And you've been at it all morning, and somewhere around lunch, you're a coworker who's who's called in late, shows up about halfway in the middle of the day, and hasn't really done anything yet, and then immediately starts critiquing your work and pointing out. You know how you feel? It's exactly the opposite of how Paul felt about uh, Epaphroditus. He felt like this guy had been slugging it out with him from from the beginning, alongside him. He was a fellow worker. And that work had to do with the gospel. There's work to be done in the church. There's work to be done in the world. I mean, the gospel is the power of God into salvation. I mean, it is good news. It's not just news. It's not just fixed. It's not just something that's happened. It's good news. It's the news that the world needs. I mean, especially in a time like right now when, when everybody's focused on their mortality. I mean, you can tell them they can have eternal life. There's work to be done there. There's work to be done in the church. The church is the bride of Christ. It's going to be presented to Jesus as a chaste bride, so the sanctification that needs to be done in your life and in the church as a whole. It's work. That it's hard work. It's rewarding work. But that's work best done together. When the sewer overflowed in our basement last weekend, uh, Bailey and Gabby and Olivia and Jared and Bella came running to help us. And there's no way we could have done it. You know, without them. I mean, the lady that was staying with us drove Tracy to the hospital while, while I stood out in the rain with the septic truck, and we got in bed late, and, and we were worn out, but we labored together. We shared stories about it afterwards, and, and we laughed after it was over. Not much laughing, but we laughed a little bit after it was over. And it felt like we did something together. My heart was endeared. These are my children, my daughter-in-law. But I was even more endeared to them than, than normal because we labored together. They helped us. Listen, in the church, it's not just activity that connects you. It's the kind of labor that you do. I mean, you can be connected at the Moose Lodge or on the ball field or whatever else, and there's a genuine connection because God has created human beings not to be alone, and, and you can feel some camaraderie. But it's very different from, from Christian service, Christian camaraderie. You're laboring together for the Lord. You're partnering in the gospel. And that binds us in, in one church. That's exactly what Paul told them back in chapter 1 in Philippians 1, 27. You remember Philippians 1? Paul says, whether I come or whether I remain absent, uh, I, I want to hear that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind. Watch this, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Standing and striving, working together for the sake of Jesus' name. And that makes you a fellow worker. And that work, Paul says, is like wartime labor. There's the third thing that he calls him here. Commendable serving is described like a, like a fellow soldier. It's a compound word, meaning someone who struggles alongside you against spiritual enemies. It, it's not just, this is my brother, we're, we're in this together. It's not just we're laboring alongside each other. We have a common enemy. His enemy is real. 
Notice he, he adds a, a word here or a, a prefix, with or, or fellow. Paul was chained to a soldier. He was witnessing to him. And he's looking at that soldier and he's saying, I know a better soldier than this one, the Roman soldier. It's, it's Epaphroditus. He's like a fellow soldier with me in the work of the Lord. He, Paul told Timothy to be a good soldier of Christ Jesus in his battle for the gospel. And you might expect that for a pastor. I mean, when we, when we graduate students from the Expositor Seminary, you might expect us to stand up here and say, be a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Hold fast the word. And, and that would be right. We do. But Paul calls here a simple serving church member, a fellow soldier. Epaphroditus is not below Paul. Paul's not above him. They're fighting alongside each other uh, together. It's like in, the, like in the service, like in the Marine Corps. Men brought together from all backgrounds, all walks of life. They're thrust into boot camp together, and they're taught to fight as one. And the battlefield levels ranks, and it binds the hearts together. I mean, when the bullets are flying, you don't care if a sergeant or a private saves your bacon, just as long as you're saved, right? The fellow soldier... Whether it's a pastor or whether it's a church member, that, that's what you're doing together. And that's how Paul says commendable service manifests. Common enemy makes you feel like you're wearing the same uniform. And that service was on behalf of the Philippians. Paul rounds out this, this laudable description with two final descriptors here. He says, your messenger and your minister, or your minister, or your messenger who ministered. He changes pronouns. You'll see that in verse 25. And while Epaphroditus performed this brotherly service fighting alongside Paul, it was on behalf of the Philippian church. He was their representative. Uh, Epaphroditus was, was your apostle with a little a. That's what the word apostle means. It's a messenger. It becomes a, a title like the apostle Paul with a capital A. If you've seen the risen Christ and, are, and you're sent by Christ alone, uh, Epaphroditus was, was not that. Those, those guys are gone. They're, they're few. He was sent by the church with a monetary gift for Paul and a message from them. And, and as their messenger, he stayed on to serve, and that was a commendable thing. Uh, do you know how it feels whenever you hear a missionary who gives a, re- a report about the gospel spreading somewhere or churches being planted and, or men being trained for, for, for the ministry? And as a believer, it thrills your soul. But doesn't it take an, uh, take an, a, take an up a notch when it's your missionary? It's a missionary from our church and, and you're sitting there going, you know what? I mean, I've been faithfully giving to my church and they're, they're part of our missions budget. And look at what's happening. You feel like you're part of that. You're a partner with, with their work. That was, that was a Epaphroditus. He's our messenger. Sent out as Christ's messenger. And he performed service on their behalf. Paul calls him your minister. It's not the word for deacon. It's the word where we get liturgy. It's, it was used in secular life of somebody who served in a, in a public uh, realm without... Pay. They, they would do it on their own dime. Epaphroditus passionately ministered. But notice the target of, of his ministry. It, it, it wasn't the Philippians, it was Paul. Paul says, a fellow soldier who was also your minister, messenger and minister to my need. 
Epaphroditus was sent to Paul because the church loved Paul and they heard he had, he had a need. Paul had been arrested. He has to take care of himself. He has to pay for his own quarters. He has to pay for his own food. And Paul can't work, obviously being incarcerated, and so he can't make tents. And so the church knows the apostle has, an, has a need, and they send Epaphroditus with the money to meet the need, and Epaphras stayed. And they rallied to, to Paul's, Paul's aid by sending money and a man. And, and both are needed in God's work. Listen, you may not have much money, but you can offer yourself, and that's something just as valuable, you can offer yourself as someone who serves. You may not be able to do certain things, and God may have blessed you with resources, and, and you can become a church member, and you, and you can give. And Commendable service is doing whatever you can for whatever is needed. And doesn't it feel great when you do both, and God uses you to meet a real need, real need like Paul's? I mean, look around you. I mean, there's needs everywhere. People with, with needs of encouragement and... And, and counseling, financial needs to keep the gospel going out, seminary needs, school needs, uh, both people and pennies. And the Philippians sent both. It was part of their service, and it was commendable. That commendable service, though, was, was also found in a, in a second feature. Look at the second one here. The second feature of commendable service that you see in Epaphroditus' life is is commendable serving's distress. Look at you at verse 26. He says, Because he was longing for you all and was distressed because he had heard, uh, you had heard that, that he was sick. Paul tells us why he sent Epaphroditus so urgently, and he reveals the second feature that, that's commendable, second feature of service. It was because Epaphroditus was, was concerned, literally distressed over them. Epaphroditus was not tired of serving Paul. He didn't flame out. He didn't want to go home. He, he didn't give up. Uh, he didn't have a desire to leave, but his heart was torn because the church knew that he was sick. I mean, really sick to the point of death. So Paul gives these two reasons. They, he, he was sending him because Epaphroditus longed to see them and he was anxious over their concern. Or it, it could just mean the second one explains the, the first. He his longing for them was prompted by his anxiety over them. Either way, when you engage in commendable service, your heart is invested in the people that you serve. And that's the point. Here's this distress, and that distress came from a heart. It wasn't disconnected service. Ah, I don't really care about these people that I'm, that I'm serving. It's not the way Epaphroditus served at all. The word for distress is very significant. It means anxious, anxiety, deep turmoil. It's the same word that's used about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Mark 14, And he took it with him, Peter, James, and John, and he began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. Same word. Now, of course, no human being has experienced the anguish that our Lord experienced, but Epaphroditus was sincerely burdened for the Philippians. Not over his own sickness, but over worry for them. I actually think right now it, it might be easier to understand what Epaphroditus was going through than in our current climate than maybe any other time. Imagine what you would, what you would feel if if you were you had a loved one 
maybe a family, and you were admitted to the hospital during COVID, and you went into ICU, and you were put on a ventilator or whatever, whatever happens in those very serious cases, and, and your family can't go in with you, and, and they heard that you were on your deathbed, and, and likely you're, they, were, they heard you were going to die. They couldn't call, they couldn't FaceTime you. That's the last word they got. How, how would you feel as a family member waiting to hear about your loved one? And then imagine you're the loved one in the hospital and you recover like Harold did. And you can't get word out. Your family still thinks that, that you're on your deathbed. Wouldn't you be distressed over, over them? Wouldn't you want to get to them as quickly as possible and say, the Lord's raised me up? That's exactly what Paphroditus was feeling. You'd want to go to them right away and you'd want to let them know. Even in his serving Paul, Epaphroditus has a heart for serving others. His heart was toward Paul that endears him to Paul, and his heart is torn toward, toward the church that, that sent him. That's what real serving entails. You're invested in those you serve. I mean, can you teach Sunday school and not care for the little ones that you teach? I don't really care whether they learn the song, Jesus Loves Me or not. Of course not. You would never think that. Can you disciple someone and not care whether they apply what you've taught them? Can you share the gospel with someone and not really care whether they receive Jesus or not? And your heart is invested in true spiritual service, and that's commendable. Commendable service is not just activity. It, it's from the heart. No matter what it costs you personally. Here's the third feature that you learn here. The third feature of commendable service is, is the distance that, that you're willing to go. It's serving's distance. Look at you, what at verse 27. What's Paul say? For indeed he was sick to the point of death. I mean, Epaphroditus might show up and they say, well, how sick was he? Well, he was really sick to the point of death, Paul says. And Epaphroditus was committed to go to the, go to the distance in his commendable service. The word that Paul uses for sick means just without strength. It's is a general term for, for illness. But here we're told the extent of his sickness. It was to the point of death. Literally, uh, near neighbor to death. We would say he was at death's door. He's right there. That's how bad. Paul describes the distance he went in service. Three times he says he almost died. Here in verse 27, he was near death. Verse 30, he nearly died. Also in verse 30, he was risking his life. I mean, this is detrimental. I mean, Philippians were not overreacting in their concern. It was serious. They had good reason to be concerned for Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was torn. He wanted to go to them to relieve their suffering, their concern over him. He wanted to stay with Paul because that's... That's why he was there. He, he was serving Paul. His heart was invested. And, and because of that, he would go the distance. He would stay there and die or, or, or whatever it, it might be. It's commendable service. How far will you go to serve someone? How long would you stay? How much time will you give out of your calendar, your schedule, to do meaningful, commendable True from the heart service. Do you often count the cost of service and, and back out of the sacrificial kind? Well, I can commit to, to, to doing a little bit, but, but I don't want to own it because you know, I'm just too busy. 
the kind that may even cost sleep or health. Commendable service sees the need and those you're serving is more valuable than what it costs you. And that's the difference from the world, isn't it? The world serves, but it always gets something out of it, some accolade, something for itself. Notice what saved him from this point of death. Look at verse 27 again. For indeed he was sick to the point of death, that's the distance, but God had mercy on him, and not on him also, not on him only, but also on me. And the result of that mercy was so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. That's Paul. Paul says if God had not intervened and raised him up from his sickbed, he would have died. It it was sovereign mercy that came from, from God who chooses to give it, not from Paul's healing ministry or cajoling or anything else. Now, I, notice, I know this is not a sermon on, on healing, but, but embedded in, in, in these two verses, there's some really helpful information about healing that, that God brings to, to His servants. First of all, I want you to notice that, that Paul calls it mercy. It was divine mercy. Any healing, supernatural or otherwise, is an act of God's mercy, meaning it's undeserved. You and I are not promised physical health or wealth or healing because of Jesus' stripes or or any other Old Testament verse pulled out of context. You get eternal life. You get life with God. You get heaven. And we live under the curse. And you want to see the curse in living color, you just go listen to Ecclesiastes the book that we just finished, and, and then read Revelation 22.3, which says that the curse is, is no more. There will be no curse. There will be no sickness or death in the kingdom. But right now, it, it's part of, of this world, and it's also part of God's plan. It's just the opposite of what you hear from the charlatans and the faith healers. In fact, 2 Corinthians 1 says that our sickness and distress are even used by God to serve others. It says, who comforts us in all of our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves were comforted by God. You get sick, God comforts you, and now you have the ability to comfort others that go through the same thing. God will never have you dig a well in the desert that He doesn't bring somebody else along to drink out of it. Digging a well in the desert's hard. You get to drink out of it whenever you hit water. But that well is there for somebody else to drink out of too. It's not just about you. And look at what's highlighted at the end in verse 6. But, but if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. It's mercy. Notice, The second, it's for others. Paul also said this mercy extends beyond the sick person. So when you're thinking about healing, it it extends just beyond the person who's sick. Paul says not only on him, but also on me. The the result being so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Epaphroditus' death would be additional sorrow to what the Apostle Paul is already feeling. The sorrow of his incarceration, his captivity, and and the adversaries that that are preaching the gospel trying to to needle the Apostle Paul in chapter 1. That brought sorrow to his heart. 
And Epaphroditus' death would have brought additional sorrow to that. God's healing of Epaphroditus was also for Paul. And a person who is sick gets the obvious benefit when they get well. But God may raise them up, not for them, but to show mercy to somebody else. I prayed that the Lord would, would raise up Harold for, for the church in Gale. I know you did too. But not, frankly, not so much for himself. Um, in fact, I found myself in my prayers asking God to sift my prayers for selfishness. I mean, Harold's an 80-year-old man. He dies, he goes to heaven. He gets to be with Christ. I mean, nobody's in a hurry to stop serving the Lord, but, but who would get the worst of the deal if, if, if Harold went to heaven? It wouldn't be him. If Harold died, he would go straight to be with the Lord. But we would be left here with sorrow upon sorrow, wouldn't we? So I asked God to have mercy on Gail. And he did, just like you asked. He answered our prayers. And it wasn't just for Harold. It was for us, and it was for her. Paul knew Epaphroditus was going. He knew where Epaphroditus was going, and he knew that he would be grieved. But he grieved with hope. He would have still lost a brother, a fellow worker, and a soldier. And because of that, he would have been sorrowful. And the added sorrow even beyond that would have been what he would experience and then the pain of sending a letter with Timothy and said, rather than praising Epaphroditus and saying, commend him, say, he's dead. The third thing I want you to notice about, about healing that's tucked in here is, is I want you to notice that Paul didn't heal Epaphroditus. Did you ever think about that? I mean, it's the apostle. He has a healing ministry. I mean, if anybody had the miraculous gift of healing, it was Paul. I mean, we know that from the book of Acts. He, he does that. I mean, here is a perfect place to see the gift of healing put on display and, and, and the Philippians be commanded to go and do likewise. I mean, this is an epistle he's writing to teach them. And Paul's giving illustrations and examples of what to do. I mean, the Philippians don't have the Gospels. The Bible's not complete yet. And, and so this has been a perfect place for the Apostle Paul saying, now, now you understand, uh, you have the gift of healing just like I do, and what you need to do is just exactly what I did with, with Epaphroditus. And if we're commanded to heal people in Jesus' name like the faith healers claim, Paul should have said, and in Jesus' name I commanded the sickness to flee, and it did. And now Philippians, uh, that's what you should do whenever somebody gets sick in your church. But, but Paul says God had divine mercy based on his choice. He says nothing about healing him. It's granted for the benefit of others. Paul holds him up on his deathbed to the mercy of God, no doubt in prayer, just like he left Trophimus and Miletus sick, just like he told Timothy to take a little wine for his stomach ailments. Isn't all this exactly what Paul says back in chapter 1 about his own life? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain, but if I'm to live on the flesh, it will mean fruitful labor for me, but it's also beneficial for you. It's God's choice. I don't know what he's going to choose. Commendable service is to be willing to go to the end if necessary, but it's to see your life and whatever God chooses to do with it as a benefit for for others, for their faith. So to what distance will you serve? Do you you serve with your whole heart? Do you go all in? 
Do you see your, see your life as one offered to be spent for others? Do you pray even for your own health, for the benefit of others? Or do you pray like I do? God, I don't want to get sick, and whenever I get a headache, God, please make it go away. That's not how Epaphroditus prayed or Paul prayed. Final, uh, finally, notice the, this godly man's example in, in verse 28. Verse 28. He says, Therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. There's Paul's heart. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, and not only him, but hold men like him in high regard. Commendable service. Commend them too. Why? Because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking or deficient in your service to me. Commendable service has, has a twofold direction here. The distance is however far is necessary, but it's aimed in two places. It, 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 the direction is toward others, and it's for the Lord. Notice who initiated Epaphroditus' return. Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly. And you get the picture here. Paul is telling Epaphroditus, even in his grieving heart, they're worried about me, but I have to stay and I have to serve you, Paul. Paul says, no, you're going. Paul's the one that sends Epaphroditus back. He, he doesn't jump ship. Epaphroditus was eager to ease their minds, but he's also torn to say, stay, and so Paul sends him back because Paul was a servant. Paul puts his own needs aside, and, and, and when he thinks about the Philippians, when he thinks about others, it makes him even more eager to, to serve them by sending the one who was sent to serve him. And what he gets in return is that, that he'll be able to rejoice. He'll be less concerned about it. His loss would be their gain, and their gain would be his relief, would be his reward. It's like the Lord, isn't it? The way up is the way down. The way to, the way to get is to give. See, everything's backwards from the, from the world. MacArthur said, such is the remarkable power of selfless love. Selfless love is put on display here. Maybe you don't like to ask for help or you feel guilty when, when you have to call on someone else for aid. And You know how it feels when somebody comes to your aid and they make you feel like they want to do it? That's how Epaphroditus and Paul served. They they wanted to serve. You know why they wanted to serve? Because true servants get joy out of serving. It's not drudgery. We learned that in Paul's example of joyful sacrifice. Commendable service thinks of others first. It's, it's directed toward others. Self is last. And, and in living that way, you, you gain as well. Don't you get joy out of helping others? But notice the ultimate direction here. It's unto Christ. Look if you would at verse 30 because he came close to death for the work of Christ. It's for Christ. Paul says, receive him in the Lord with all joy. Now we know that they'll be happy to see him. We know that, that they'll be happy to know he's okay. But that's not 
why they're to receive him, how, to, how they're to receive him. Hey, we got our church member back, and he's healthy. That's not what Paul says. That's not what they're rejoicing over. They're rejoicing in the Lord, and they're to do it in the Lord with all joy. The word for receive him here was used by the Pharisees in a very derogatory way about, about Jesus in Luke 15. You know where that, that, that great invitation at the end of Luke 14, go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be full, and Jesus is teaching the Pharisees there that the ones who, who actually get into the kingdom are, are not the, the ones who, who, who think that they, they deserve getting in. It's the blind and the crippled and the lame, the spiritually blind, the spiritual cripples. They're the ones that, that actually get into the kingdom. They're the ones that, that are invited in. And then Luke 15.1 starts with this phrase, Then drew near to hear him, that's Jesus, all the sinners and the publicans. And it says the Pharisees murmured, and it tells us what they said. This man receives sinners, and he eats with them, receives them with joy. What a beautiful picture of the Lord. The Lord receives sinners. He receives them. He rejoices in, in the, those who know that they're lost, know that they have nothing to offer God. You don't care what you've done or where you've been or how deep is your sin. The minute that you recognize that you're bankrupt and you have nothing to offer God and, the, and you even glance towards Christ, He welcomes you, He receives you in the gospel. Beautiful thing. And Paul says you receive commendable servants in the church that way. People that give it all for the Lord. That's how you're to receive them in the same way. It means honor, full acceptance. It means to go on honoring them in that way. Uh, commendable servants don't, don't want recognition, but God says it's proper to render it to, to real ones. Hold these men in high regard. Not only, not only Epaphroditus, but men like him. Anyone who truly serves Christ with, with that honor. And he tells us why. Because they came close to death for the work of Christ. Risking his life to complete what was deficient or lacking in your service to me. That doesn't mean that, that they didn't send enough money, or Paul got it and he counted it up and says, wow, you're like $20 short, guys. Uh, he means that the, the Philippians longed to, to be there. Like if they could be there and, and, and give the money to Paul themselves, they would come. But it's hundreds of miles away, so they send Epaphroditus. So he is there on their behalf doing what they wish they could do. And now he's sent back. Honor him because he served almost to death and because his service was unto Jesus. And it was their service unto Jesus as well, the churches. He risked his life, literally threw aside his own welfare for the serving of Christ. Commendable service, listen, will cost you something. If it doesn't, it's not this level of service. Didn't Jesus tier levels of service? You want to be great? Be a servant. You want to be the greatest? Become a slave. You give up all your rights. Commendable service like Epaphroditus. What we're, what's modeled before us is, is this level of service. But you gain far more. You gain far more. John MacArthur said in the early days of the church after the New Testament era, it was actually an association of men and women who got their name from this passage. The, the word here which says he's risking his life to complete what was deficient. The word for, for risk there was used in, in the Greek culture for, for a gamble, to gamble. And Epaphroditus was their hero. 
He said it was their aim, these gamblers. It was their aim and their mission to visit prisoners, to visit the sick, especially those with infectious and dangerous and communicable diseases. That's what they lived to do. I don't want to just go in the, the podiatry unit. I want to go into the AIDS ward. That's where I want to serve. unhesitatingly, unflinchingly, and boldly proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ in every environment without hesitation. He went on to, to, to make an interesting note about A.D. 252 in the city of Carthage where they had a terrible plague. And the heathen, the unbelievers, were so frightened of the germs that, that whenever the people died, they, they, just, they just hurled the bodies out of the city because they didn't want to touch them to bury them. And, and Cyprian, the Christian bishop, gathered up the congregation of his church uh, uh, together, and the church members took the bodies of these, these people who died of the plague, and, and in a gracious act of human kindness, they buried the dead. And according to the historians as well, they, they even nursed sick people coming close enough to touch them in the plague-infested city, risking their lives to save some to reach people for Christ. Now that's real selfless love. That's a far cry from if you love your neighbor, wear your mask. If you want to quote love your neighbor verse, then go sign up at the COVID unit of chaplaincy because there are people in there who are dying that can't tell their loved ones that they're dying. Or become a nurse. Volunteer as a nurse whenever there was no PPE for the same reason. Because you want to be there because there are people dying in the hospital and the, their pastors can't get in to see them and no one else can get in to see them. And you're a nurse and you're there and you can share the gospel with them before they slip off into eternity. That's selfless love. Without concern for himself, Epaphroditus served even to his own detriment for Jesus and to fulfill their wishes. And he was there on the church's behalf, and he didn't want to let Paul down or them, so he just served quietly behind the scenes for Jesus. But now this man is honored in the Philippian church, honored by the Apostle Paul, honored by us today. We're reading about this man. He was honored in heaven. <laughs> That's a worthy life, isn't it? Let me ask you a question. What are you laying your life down for? Every tick of the clock, every piece of sand that goes through the hourglass is gone. It's a part of your life. It it will never return. Your days are numbered. What are you laying your life down for? Every sand that that hits in in the bottom is one more dollar for retirement. One more step towards the beach house? Or is it one more effort for the gospel of Christ? One more child in Sunday school taught to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, whether they come to the Lord or not. That song will be there whenever they're 60 years old and wayward, and the Lord can bring it to their memory. Whatever you're laying down your life for, It should be only what the promise and the power of Christ can pick back up. I hope it's something eternal, something worthy. Anything else is an empty bag, and it'll leave you with empty hands when you stand before this Savior, the one who loved you so much that He left 
heaven, didn't grasp the glory of his deity. He let it go. He willingly came as a man. He, he, he lived amongst his own creation that rejected him. You rejected him, rebelled against him. He laid down his life. To the point of death, even death on a cross, he absorbed the wrath of God. And then he was buried and rose from the dead. And now he, he's at the right hand of the Father, uh, offering salvation full and free who all, to all who repent and believe. And that's the offer to you today. He serves you even in heaven today. Um, and if you'll receive that service, then you can serve him. That's very different from what the world offers, isn't it? And sadly, those who go that way end up exactly with what the world has at the end of their days. I know better of you, Timberlake. You're a serving church. And the Lord will commend you for your service. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We thank you for these three men that have given us an example. Lord, we, we've been exhorted, we've been encouraged, we've been rebuked. We pour contempt on all of our pride. We, we know that whatever we have, whether it's salvation or ability or opportunity, it's all divine mercy that you've chosen to give us, and we rejoice in that. And Lord, all we have to offer you is our sin. And what you give us in return is yourself. And now we just want to be your bond slaves. We die. Um, and we want to live for you. So use us. Thank you for teaching us a contrary way to the world. And I pray for everyone here um, that we would go on in commendable service to hear your well done but the well done of others, just like in this church. And I pray if there's anybody here this morning that, that's never received the service of Christ on the cross, that today they, they would bow the knee. And I ask it all in His precious name. Amen.